Hello everyone and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do, the UK's premier RPG podcast. I am one of your hosts, Gaz, and with me, as usual, is my good friend Baz. How's it going down there? Awesome. How are you doing, mate? Here we go again. Very good, yes. Here we are once again. Happy as can be. If you're happy and you know it, it's the mids. <laughs> <laughs> that could have something to do with it. Yeah, I've, uh, I've just come back from Grogmeat, which is yes. uh, a little convention. If some of our listeners know we have crossover, some may be unaware, uh, if you haven't heard. There's another podcast in the triumvirate of UK top podcasts, which is The Grognard Files. Also check out the good friends of Jackson Elias. The three of us, I think, dominate the UK role-playing scene. I'm just going to say it. And, uh, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, c- yeah. Come at me if you want on Mastodon or wherever the social media choice is when Chip <laughs> is dead. <laughs> come at me on Mastodon sounds like the name of your second album. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, it's uh, behind my OnlyFans paywall, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, that was that was good fun. Good fun. It's, uh, the Grognar Files is really around uh, a bit of nostalgia, I guess, because Dirk and Blythe, who who do the podcast, they sort of went into a deep freeze, as they call it. They stopped playing games when they found out about beer and girls and things. Got married, had kids, and now they're coming back to it later in life. And a lot of the people who go to Grognar are similar. There's other UK congoers that go as well, but there's a core of people who've sort of been away from the hobby and come back. So it's got a good feeling of bonhomie. Because there's a lot of uh, middle-aged men who are like, just glad to be out for the weekend, you know, <laughs> away from the family, doing something they've always loved, getting that nostalgia again and, and playing sort of old games in many cases, uh, occasions. So, yes, played some like Oz Magica, for example. That was one of the games. And another one based around Strong Team Dog. If we've got 2,000 AD fans out there, that was cool. Loads of good things. In fact, if, if you have read 2,000 AD, dear listeners, you know there's quite a lot of puns and things like that in there and... Uh, and callbacks to pop culture of a certain time there's a really good one that we missed during the game but we all sort of spotted afterwards was uh, there was a, a beetle a man-sized beetle that was in this mm-hmm. kitchen doing all this stuff you know one stands on its hind legs and the other forearms are all like prepping burgers and flipping stuff and chopping them up and all that and uh, another attendee old scouser is unsurprisingly scout so he speaks with a bit of a scouser accent and the beetle reciprocated via the <laughs> medium of the GM the daily dwarf but it's quite funny. Oh, you lot of bad, get out. All that kind of stuff. And we, we, couldn't, we thought, or, or I thought anyway, that it was some kind of just because, you know, he's speaking to old Scouser, so he's mirroring the accent. And then it was pointed out to us. We saw so Sadwood missed this. He's a Beatle, isn't he? So, of course, he's from Liverpool. Oh. oh, great music reference. But, yes, the game was full of all that kind of stuff. Loads of, like, bits. And I almost want to play the game again to kind of spot all the references I must have missed on the first yeah. run through, you know. Really good stuff. And Ice Magic was really cool. It was, it, that's been on my list for some time. Mm. But yeah, we had a really good table. So there's lots of the uh, GMs and authors and, and people like Guy, who's been a stunt baz quite often on our podcast, was mm-hmm. there. Dr. Mitch, who was running Out of the Ashes, the, one of his latest games that he's written. And you know a bunch of the people, Graham Spearian, that runs conventions up in Sheffield. Really like a stellar cast around the table. So we had great fun. We could have been playing anything, to be honest. But it was nice to play some Ice Magic again from the past. And I think that's... One of the benefits of Grogmeat is you get some of the old classic games which perhaps don't get uh, airtime anywhere else, kind of get dusted off and um, played there. So that was that was very good. Nice. Uh, Ars Magica, I've owned a couple of editions of that over the years. Very rarely have I ever played it. It's definitely a desert island game. It feels like you've got to invest time into it and it would be useful time to invest into it. But if everybody got on board with it, you could get massive campaigns out of that. Absolutely, and I think, long time. yeah, one of the good things about it was that 
for those that don't know, you you play at different levels. So you've kind of got the the Magus, who's at the top, who's a big magic user, who's uh, sits on a, a tower quite often, and does research into spells, is quite powerful. Then his companions are kind of middling characters who've got a bit more going on, but aren't aren't as powerful and kind of get things done to a degree, mm-hmm. but have have some some bits and pieces about them. And then the Grogs, who are just like the the chef or the cook or whatever or the the stable boy and stuff who were right at the bottom of the rungs but there's certain jobs that need doing around the place and they do them so the session was good because we had a couple of us that were mages and then a couple of companions as well but all the companions had a grog so they were playing two characters each nice. so we kind of had like an eight character party or something between five of us and it played at different levels depending on who was acting at the time as to what sort of strata of society we were playing it so that's all really cool I like that kind of idea. I, I didn't really understand a lot of the rules because there's a lot to it, but you know, we just relied heavily on uh, Matt Osaka so on Twitter. Bless him, he he knew what he's doing. So we just uh, said, "I want to do this," and let him work all that bit out for us, which is uh, a sign of a good convention chair, actually. If you know, if you've got mastery of your system, it doesn't matter as much if your players fully understand all the ins and outs. Mm. I think um, our mate Guy, he loves trying to uh, to take unplayable games for one shots and make them actually happen yes ours magic is definitely in the canon isn't it of like mm. is this even possible to do it in three or four hours but clearly it is yeah yeah a lot of that stuff is there's a whole bunch of different stuff going on so check out the grognon files if you haven't already mm. but let's get let's get bound to um let's look less into the past or maybe it's quite far into the past a galaxy far far away a long long time ago you've been uh <laughs> spinning up a, a new session zero for a game what was that bus it's a, it's a little known franchise, so you know we we, like, we sometimes go a bit obscure on this podcast. You may have heard of this one, you may not have done, but I recommend checking it out if you haven't. It's called Star Wars. Star Wars? Is that like Star Trek? <laughs> it, it's just like that, mate. Yeah, it's basically the same thing. <laughs> Beam me up onto the Millennium Falcon. Oh dear. Yeah, Star Wars, uh, a perennial favourite, and, mm. and clearly the the tabula rasa of role playing. I would suggest because. You know, you need no further introduction, does it? In fact, you probably just need to to, to focus in on what type of Star Wars it is you're talking about, because Star yes. Wars is now such a, a wide term um, that can mean so much to so many different people, generations of people. Mm. Um, but it's, um, as I'm sure it is the case with so many people, with given the time of the birth of the hobby and the time that A New Hope came out in the UK, these were pretty concurrent events in my life, and um, and the two have always been joined up. And I, and I just I cannot believe that that anybody has not like looked at their copy of Traveller in 1979 and thought, where's the lightsaber? Flick, 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 flick. Where is it? It's got to be in there somewhere. And and we've all done it. And mm-hmm. and sometimes we play Star Wars using a Star Wars rule system, and sometimes we play Star Wars when we're not. Mm-hmm. Um, I always play Star Wars in my head. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. If I'm playing a game of chess, I am Han Solo, of course one of the greatest characters in any role-playing game ever. So, yeah, we've spun up a, a new game, um, kind of out of nowhere, like, like they always are the best ones. So uh, our, our current resident GM, Matt, Matt with one T, Steamforge Matt, friend of the show, uh, has uh, dropped his Star Wars collection on the table, nearly breaking it. <laughs> and we've gone with FFG, Fantasy Flight Games, who have produced so much Star Wars material over the last ooh, 10 years, probably, that we now have big old chunky books, and we've done a session zero. We opened up those books, we got some character sheets, and we started filling in dots. And I should point out that we were sitting around an actual table in each other's room, which is also a new thing. Like the before times. 
just like the before times and we're playing a game from the before times and we're all very very happy one of us is playing uh my mate steve is playing a droid uh a protocol droid and uh, which is just cool nice you know there's, yeah. there's so many games where you could play a robot but you don't but in mm. star wars you, if you don't have a droid in the party it doesn't really feel like it is one <laughs> <laughs> it was surprise no one who knows my friend jules that he's playing a wookie uh, maxed out for <laughs> maximum punching casting. <laughs> uh, we have a couple of well because we're playing Edge of the Empire which for those who don't know Fantasy Flight Games have done a, a triumvirate of, of takes on Star Wars one's kind of about your Han Solo smugglers and scum of villainy type Mos Eisley adventures yeah. uh, the other one's much more sort of militaristic with the Age of the Rebellion uh, where you, you play uh, soldiers of the Rebellion and then there's Force and Destiny which is all of your dressing gowns and, and glowing sticks so we're, we're down the edge of the Empire effort so a couple of the characters are much more your kind of uh, yeah we've probably got we should call them scum and villainy because that's pretty much who they are yeah. there's a bounty hunter and a, and a street thug level who's become a bodyguard and then, then I'm, I'm obviously the happy-go-lucky guy in the Hawaiian shirt that flies the ship. <laughs> so we're really happy with our setup, and we've had uh, a quick taster of um, a running gunfight through the streets of Coruscant, which was just very Star Warsy. Because mm. the beauty of Star Wars is you go, you're on Coruscant, and like just about everyone who heard me say that's going to go, yep, I can see that in my mind. Yeah. So you know, no description necessary, although Matt always brings the flavour and paints a really nice scene. Mm. and we got the funky dice out we rolled them we had successes we had misses we crossed out hit points on a character sheet and uh, and wrote them in again it was a classic uh, classic adventure and and it struck me that don't play it enough don't Mm. play star wars enough nowhere near enough in all of those conversations we've ever had about science fiction games i don't know why but star wars doesn't immediately just jump into the number one slot you like ashtrays in space and it's pretty close to that right Yes, I mean, my preferred source of is more like Event Horizon than Star Wars generally. <laughs> yes, uh, I do like Star Wars, like the old classics stuff that's got physical props and things with puppets rather than CGI and that kind of stuff. And I guess, well, I've, I've tried the FFG game a couple of times recently. So one that didn't quite work so well, which was through no fault of the GM or the players really, we just thought we'd had a really good idea. So for our little campaign that we ran for six or eight weeks, one of us was like, I want to be a droid. And I was like, yeah, I wanted to be a droid as well. And someone else was like, I wanted to be a droid. It was a nice, you know, I'm Spartacus moment. So we decided to go with it. Three of us were droids. Mm. And one person just picked like a human mechanic who could keep us all, you know, basically maintained. It was like having the cleric for the party or something. <laughs> and then we met and, that's, and the NPC that ended up with us was like an R5 unit. So it was like four robots and one like, a human just hanging around being weird and it was great for about one session and then very quickly we we're kind of like it's we're all too semi really oh, <laughs> like, okay. you know it, it, it didn't work as well as we'd hoped i don't think so if we did it again we'd change up the, the good thing about uh stories as you alluded to is, is the depth of the settings so if you want to be space wizards you can do that but yeah again i'm much more down the the other end of things so the scum and i think is really cool and i played a game at uh, the Furnish Convention in Sheffield, I mentioned that Graham Spearing, I mentioned previously, he runs that, along with uh, Elaine and Dom. Uh, and that was an Ewok-based game. So we were all the Ewoks. <laughs> but that, yeah, I don't know whether they'd do a campaign, but certainly for a one-shot, that was amusing as well, playing it in terms of stuff we had to do and uh, framing the Empire as little space bears would 
to a degree. Mm. And talking about the you know the 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 Death Star, we didn't call that. It was like the evil metal ball in the sky. So the, it was a killer description that I can't remember what it was. But, but like you know the the Imperial biker scouts were all like the white devils on their flying horses nice. kind of thing and all that. See, you know, everybody lent into the if you didn't actually know about technology and stuff, if you were native to the planet of Endor and all you'd ever seen was you know slings and arrows, well, mm. how would you frame? Like lightsabers or something, they would seem like magic flaming swords and that kind of stuff. So it's cool to play it from different angles. Like, although we as players all know the Star Wars universe really well, like, how is it for someone who doesn't, if you're just like parochial and live on a mm-hmm. forest planet, how would you view the Empire when they came in to invade? So that, that was a cool angle as well. I think some of the media these days as well is starting to investigate different ways of doing it. It's probably worth talking about, you know, the glut of TV series and movies and stuff like that. So, yeah. I'm going to skip over the movies mostly. If it's not the original three, I don't care about them. But I'm sure if, if anyone else has got opinions, feel free to share them. Tell somebody who cares. Star Wars fans never share their opinions on Star Wars movies. So it'd be nice to hear some comments. Notoriously <laughs> shrinking violets when it comes to this kind of stuff. But where I think um, the TV series have been a success, even if you know individual episodes can be hit and miss and whether you like what's going on or not. If you look at something like The Mandalorian, that was very sort of spaghetti western, uh, and had feelings of it could almost be Clint Eastwood, who's the Mandalorian going around in, in dusty desert back streets and you know one horse towns and things like that. And then recently, you've got something like Andor, which I think is a really great series on many levels. I think the writing, the performances, the cinematography, the soundtrack, everything is brilliant. So if you haven't watched Andor, you should definitely do that. And that's arguably more an age of rebellion, as you were talking about, more soldiers. Mm-hmm. But it still feels for my kind of sci-fi, it still feels gritty. It's yep. still sort of down to earth and street level, which which I like, and there's, um, it does a good job of showing, like why the empire is evil, and almost like the the sort of uncaring bureaucracy of the evilness as well in many ways. That it's not just you know the emperor is some supervillain who's got this master plan. It's good mirror of today's society, and that's as a good science fiction should be. It kind of has you know analogies to real life or to potential mm. futures that we might end up in if we don't watch what we're doing that kind of stuff. So mm. I think that's really good sci-fi. But it's uh, they're both two examples of two series from the same companies, but have wildly different flavors, but within the same universe. Yeah, they're good lenses. There's enough now as well that you can pick your flavor, can't you? Yeah, uh, you're so well served by the media with anything to do with Star Wars. Um, I'm kind of one of those rare Star Wars fans that doesn't hate Star Wars. So <laughs> for me, I quite like I quite like chipping in and out. I don't watch all of it. I don't. I can't. I, I never have been able to. So um, it's a love Andor. I'm only about halfway through it, so no spoilers, please. And it's definitely a bit of a slow burn. And it's mm. been building and building, and it's and it's it's blossoming out into all kinds of stuff. And I can't wait to watch the next one. Mandalorian, I thought was some of the best TV ever which and I'm, I'm lining that up with things like the west wing and the other wow. band of brothers you know i genuinely genuinely think the mandalorian is some of the best telly ever made okay um not every episode but it's it had all the right stuff for me and it and it had that feel that kind of nebulous feel of saturday afternoon or saturday tea time telly hmm. uh proper good old-fashioned adventure stories and, and i'm not the first person to say this but it, it was like John Favreau and the rest of them were playing with their Star Wars action figures, yeah. and then they decided to turn that into a script. Mm. And it's 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 what it's what Star Wars fans would have done if they'd been given the budget, um, but without it necessarily just being all choked up in fan service and so on. I thought that you know there were some really interesting characters. 
great stuff. But then, you know, but there's been as many misses as there's been hits. I didn't think the book of Boba Fett was particularly engaging. Not really, until The Mandalorian showed up. Until it became The Mandalorian again. Yeah, Yeah, that was great. (laughs) That was great. I've not watched a single second of Obi-Wan. Not for any particular reason, but it just doesn't happen. Yeah, it's not. It's a bit flat for me as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I didn't watch all of the cartoons over the years. People swear about uh, swear by Star Wars Rebels and, and Clone Wars and stuff like that. They have seemed to have a lot of emotional engagement with the cartoons, which I've never. Picked yeah, up. I've not thoroughly got into them. I'll just quickly mention while I remember is um, like Obi Wan. I think, and this is the pro- problem for me in terms of why I wouldn't want to play Jedi. I think there's a level of people who are into the the genre who like all the yodded flipping about with lightsabers and stuff like yeah. that. I think that's what Star Wars is about, which is fine. If that's that's your view, you can like it however you want to. But that's not what I like about Star Wars. That's not that's the least good bit. So yeah. you know some of the some of the movies that put like more lightsabers in and double ended lightsabers and robots with four lightsabers and think they think that's what's good about it. But that's not what's engaging to me. I don't mm. that's not where I'm getting my juice from. So I think Obi Wan Suffered more from trying to be fan service rather than producing something good in and of itself. I think okay. that's where that fell down. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, like cartoons. Um, I only watched a couple of them. I haven't quite got into it yet, but I think it's the Bad Batch or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's basically Imperial soldiers who sort of like realize something's not right or start to change how they're approaching like the lens of the world as the sort of scales fall from their eyes. So that's. Even the cartoons have got some good old takes on how you might do Star Wars, rather than just being, for example, someone's Luke Skywalker and someone's Han Solo, etc. You, you play all the, the, you know, the standard characters from the original movie as a crew of a ship and play a firefly. Basically, there's a bunch of different ways you can uh, approach it and different periods within the timeline of Star Wars. I think because there's the novels as well that sort of like try and bridge gaps between things and, and add more and go back in time. Uh, but yeah, the, the Rogue One style thing of Andor I like as well. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to run it more as a militaristic kind of campaign, uh, I'll play something that's more about um, a band of soldiers or something like that, for example. Yeah, and that that TV series is good for sort of like building up how the rebellion works as well. I mentioned he does it from the Empire point of view, but it also like gives you good indication of who might be reluctant rebels. Mm-hmm. I think it's easy if you just watch a New Hope because that's a self-contained thing to think that you're either a goodie or a baddie. But like, it's good at introducing some shades of grey on why somebody wouldn't necessarily be necessarily. Uh, Necessarily, necessarily, mm-hmm. <laughs> a rebel, a rebel per se, just turns into one over time, and other people have different motivations for being there, and some are self-serving. So, I think that media is good for the point of view for role playing of thinking about your characters more, and not just I'm a rebel because we're the goodies and we're fighting the empire because they're the buddies. But like, you know, what what's my motivation? As actors would say, why <laughs> why you're doing what you're doing? What's led you to this journey? There's some good stuff there for giving you ideas about making interesting characters for your games. Exactly. And um, with FFG games in particular, the triumvirate games they do, they, they mechanically apply that layer to each game to differentiate. Mm. So I think it's in Edge of the Empire, you have an obligation, um, and it's probably to a crime lord. Yeah, usually, is. yeah. <laughs> um, and that, that, makes, that makes a difference. And in Age of Rebellion, it's duty. And I have no idea what the Force and Destiny one is, but there you go. It's probably about lightsabers. Um, <laughs> but yeah, over the, over the years, lots of game systems have tried to emulate the Star Wars feel. There's only so much you can do with the dice or whatever the mechanics is, because as I think we've been talking about, some of the strands that we like from Star Wars are the aesthetics, mm-hmm. um, the shades of grey, uh, the the way that you can use a lens to zoom in on a certain aspect of Star Wars and forget the rest. It's a big universe. 
Yeah. And you can do with it what you like. And the sheer amount of inspiration that you can draw from means that it's very easy to asset up your campaign as well. It's not hard to get people on board. Um, and, and certainly with like modern technology as well, you know, you can have that sort of text crawl thing going on. You can do what you, you can do as much or as little as you want at the table to bring the Star Wars to it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it, like, certainly, I know you're playing Meat Space, but if you're playing online, as lots of us still do, mm. like just being having pictures and stuff, and you know, like let alone characters, but like landscapes or what an alien planet looks like or things like that at your fingertips, you can just drag onto Roll Twenty. Or whatever you're using, that's like a massive benefit for for GMs to be able to yep. fill your word out. Because I'm playing, started a 50 Fathoms campaign at the minute. Um, I'm playing with uh, Guy and Neil and some others, and one of the characters is a Grail, which is like a walrus man. Oh yeah, I remember those. Yeah. yeah. If the smart posse want to get out there and find me more pictures of walrus men, there's about three <laughs> on the whole of Google. Like I've got a bunch of NPCs I need to provide, and there's not many Grail photos. I can tell you that. Uh, whereas, if you wanted an Imperial officer or something mm. like that, there's like a bajillion different things. You, can, you don't just have to have Mr. Bronson. There are a variety of different Imperial officers you can pick. And just general people and aliens and, you know, strange vistas. So from that point of view, yeah, it's definitely a, a rich depth to plumb. <laughs> there's another podcast in Mr. Bronson, isn't there? There but is. Never mind, we'll come back. To <laughs> we have stories. <laughs> so I was going to ask you guys, I'll, I'll do mine first to give you a chance to think about your origin story for Star Wars as a mm. man of a certain age living in the UK. We didn't know each other at the time, back in the 70s. Um, so I'll do my origin story first because uh, it's always, I think it's always nice to know like where you come into this stuff mm. as, and then where you think you are now and it's been some time hasn't it it's like 50 years now probably close to that so um uh, as a young lad i remember i was mucking about in a room in my house and my dad shouted my name and said come and have a look at this on the telly and this was in the mid 70s guys so what was on the telly was on the telly if i didn't go and see it then i wasn't going to be seeing it, see the it. <laughs> <laughs> with a choice of three channels and he called me through and uh, and he said, check this out. This looks like the sort of thing that, that you would like. And it was a program called Tomorrow's World, which those of a certain generation will remember was BBC's popular science program um, presented by such stunners as Judith Hanna and some bloke called Kieran, I think. I can't remember, but it was fairly dry because it was the BBC. But at least you could watch it and it, it saved you from it. You could say to your parents, if I watch this then I can go to bed afterwards. And they were like, well, it looks educational, so probably fair enough. Yeah. And it would have Clive Sinclair on it every 10 minutes. Anyway, <laughs> this was on Tomorrow's World. And when I walked into the room, there was a TIE fighter, I didn't know it was called a TIE fighter, zooming across the, the kind of speckly starscape, um, bolts of what looked like lightning coming out of it. And it was chasing this, this craft that was in the shape of an X. And it was incredible. It just it is difficult to describe to a younger generation just how mad that looked on a screen. Because previously we'd had, I don't know, Buck Rogers? Maybe not mm. even then. Um, Space 1999, yeah. possibly. But that uh, Doctor Who for special effects and so on. It just, apart from the films like 2001, which were obviously big budget stuff, there just wasn't much there. And Star Trek, as great as it was, it's obviously it had like wobbly scenery and all the rest of it. Yeah. So this was just incredible. And it was on a science program and they was they were sort of spinning it as like look at the development of effects. And it was definitely a step up from yeah, Harry Housen. Mm. So that looked cool. And then we got tickets to go and see it at the cinema, which was the Odeon. 
which is not there anymore. But we went to that and me and my sister went and it was a Saturday morning showing and we saw something that we had never, ever seen at the cinema before. We had never seen it before. This time, this had not happened. There was a queue. And it went all the way around the cinema. It was genuinely a blockbuster. Mm. That had never happened. We had never seen a queue of people. And we joined the queue and everybody was kind of like wondering why it was queued. There was no buzz for Star Wars because none of us had seen it. Yeah. <laughs> it was just a movie. But everybody wanted to see it. So we eventually got through the queue. And they gave us, much like when you go to conventions and stuff, or I imagine at fashion shows, they gave us a, a goodie bag each that was full of um, stickers to put in your window and sunscreens right. to put in your telly, yeah. uh, in your car windscreen. Yeah. Um, action figures, uh, little books, colouring in stuff. I have none of that kit anymore. Sure. And uh, God knows what it would be worth. So <laughs> they gave us presents to go and watch a, watch a movie. And then we watched the movie, and that's another story about just how jaw-dropping some of the stuff was in it. But we came away with merchandise that had never happened before just hadn't happened and then you know the next monday at school we all had trading cards bubblegum trading cards we had action figures it was just it became toys and it was amazing that everybody knew everything and obviously people were trying to hit each other with sticks and do lightsaber noises and all the rest of it it was just quite an incredible revelation of utter utter newness and whether you liked it or didn't like it, and it was it was kind of a boy thing, even though I'd gone with my sister, she wasn't as into it as I was. It was a bit of a boy thing. It was absolutely revelatory that such a thing could exist. And and if you've got any kind of geek genes at all, and I just discovered Dungeons and Dragons, I think pretty much in, within that time frame, mm. then this was just everything coming together at once. But it was still really geeky. It was still really geeky. It wasn't mainstream even then. You didn't have although everyone had seen it. Loads of people, and I, I don't understand this, loads of people saw it, thought it was all right, and didn't bother seeing it again. I mean, what a weird take that is. <laughs> and yet there were other people who just went back and like would brag about having seen it five times a day for a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was my introduction to Star Wars, mate. What was yours like at the other end of the country? Uh, you were uh, treated. You don't, you don't know how lucky you were. So, well, you you are significantly older than I am, Buzz. So, significantly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly in movie terms. So I think Empire Strikes Back came out in 1980, yeah. I want to say, around then. So I was about eight or nine. And I wanted to go see it. I remember distinctly, this is like seared into my brain, that my friend came around with his brother and their dad, and they knocked on my door. They were saying, oh, we're going to go and see Empire Strikes Back. Do you want to come with us? And I obviously did. But my mum wouldn't let me because I can't remember what the rating system was back then. It was, I don't think they had PG thirteen or whatever, but it was it was like not universal, right? Or whatever the lowest movie rating was. So because there was some kind of age restriction on it, she was not comfortable with me going. So I didn't get to go and see it, and they did. So I, no. I lived through my first Star Wars movies by my friends telling me what had happened, scene by scene, blah by blah, because obviously they were blown away with it as you were and anybody was. So yeah, very ancillary. So I had lots of the figures, the training card games, quite often played with my figures and Mary's, and my brother had an Atta at one point with an Alien Falcon, and I just got snippets that I saw on TV or bits and pieces, so it took ages for me to actually see the films, but mm. just the um, aura around it, the miasma of all the, the, the Star Wars-related things to my tiny geek mind, because it was a similar time I was getting to D&D &D and stuff as well within a year or two, that just seemed amazing, really good, mm. so I... I I was like living vicariously for a couple of years until I could actually, you know, get hold of the the VHS video as it was and see Star Wars. Yeah, uh, and I think that 
you're right about the special effects and stuff. That sort of crawl of the Star Destroyer when it first comes in, chasing the Carillion Corvette, that, those special effects stood up for many years. It's not that recently that I'm still, I'm still watching that. I'm thinking, that's still pretty good. Yeah. You know, uh, and that's in, in the 2000s, certainly. It's like, it's not. You know, it's better than some of the CGI that was out at the time and that kind of thing. Definitely. So, yeah, what it, what it was like to see it on the big screen originally, as you managed to do, I can only imagine was something close to magic. You know, it's it was astonishing. Science is indistinguishable from uh, magic, as they say, if you go sufficiently far back. It was astonishing, mate. And and the thing that that draws me back to this, I even after all these decades later, it's the same thing with my first game of Dungeons and Dragons or Tunnels and Trolls. Those first kind of nascent steps into role playing. The things that drew me in very very early on are still the things that draw me in, mm. and I have to recall sometimes what those touchstones are. And that original Star Wars movie, it's, it now seems so obvious. It, it seems so hackneyed almost. You still get memes about Star Wars every day, like 40 years later. But just if you go through, if you look at A New Hope and try and look at it as if you've never seen it before and you didn't know anything about Star Wars, there was no extended universe, there was no nothing. And then Empire Strikes Back sort of doubled down on it. And then Return of the Jedi just like, well, this is outrageous. But when you look at A New Hope, there were so many bits to it that from a role-playing perspective, I think we can learn a lot from. Mm. So we've discussed so many times about how do you get a science fiction campaign started, and it just seems to be more awkward than starting something with barbarians and wizards. Mm -hmm. Star Wars does it fantastically, and it does it in ways that... It does it in ways that modern story games try to emulate, but it just does it so casually. So when it opens up and you've got that crawl text, and it says, Episode 4... That's like within two seconds of the film starting, there's a mystery. Really? Episode four? Or even before that, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's it's dropping in setting stuff that never gets explained, and certainly not in A New Hope, but just leaves you with a sense of mystery. Like here's a bit of a background that's just been spun up by George Lucas and his mates. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it, it it made it different to any other story immediately. And by the time you get through stuff like you know, a casual reference to the Clone Wars or you know Han Solo doing the Kessel Run and all of those little things that are dropped in, just the word droid, um, there is so much in there that is just casually dropped in and is never really expanded upon, but it doesn't stop the story happening. In fact, the story just continues going and it's something that gets reincorporated. George Lucas did it himself, didn't he? He reincorporated probably too much later on. Yeah. But just that dropping into the background and just, but let's keep playing. It's almost like the, the best way to start a Star Wars campaign is just to start. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's almost 13th age, isn't it? With like you can add in story elements as a player character from where you're from or what you've done, etc. It doesn't matter if that comes to life now or later, but it's, but it makes it much more three, four dimensional than, than any other film plot I'd ever seen before. It's, it's so audacious to start with episode four, don't you mm. think? Well, they had no comprehension yeah. whether they would ever be, it would even be a success. Because all everyone ever did was try and scrabble around and find out where episodes one to three were, because the yeah. four was so great. Uh, yeah, definitely. I'll talk about like an immediate red start. There's a skyscraper-sized ship against your RV-sized ship. Oh, and they, they're going to burn through the door in a minute now. What do you do? What? Yeah. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> like, you know, straight away puts you in there. Yeah, like in terms of like drawing villains and stuff like that, you can do it by the things around them. 
So Vader, who's not even like the big baddie, it's the Emperor, really, ultimately. Yeah. But Vader's just like, everybody was like absolutely bricking it. You know, mm. as soon as he's walking in the room and stuff, everyone's terrified. And you, you got that. And, you know, you didn't have to, you didn't have to do any big uh, soliloquies or monocle. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Monologue. Monologues, thank you. He didn't have to like be just constantly beating people up or sneering or whatever. He's just like, he's got a job to do. And he's, he's going to get done, and he doesn't care what happens. And like, just the whole, you know, grabs someone and picks him up by the throat, and ends up killing him accidentally because he just doesn't know his own strength or he's got that darkness in him. What like those initial scenes on that core that like just set him up. It's like he's badass. Like we're all scared, and we're going to like and the thing is not in a a typical role playing thing that a lot of gamers want to do. I like, will fight him then. Like mm. some buddies have turned up. It was just like we have to get out of here. Like there's no other options. Like you have to get away from him because it's just. You know, that kind of scene and uh, the setup. Brilliant for role-playing. Why don't we do more of that? Yeah, when you get the entrance of a villain like Darth Vader, the stuff that made him so amazing is very difficult to do in a role-playing game is to scare the player characters. Mm. You know, when, you, when you're when you about to roll initiative dice, essentially, aren't you? And it's very yeah. difficult for the players to be, you know, trembling or, or playing it right. But these guys in the Rebellion are like hunkered down behind bulkheads and stuff. And, of course, the first thing that happens is you hear that breathing noise of Darth Vader. And if you were sketching out an NPC for your campaign, you would never think that that would be the hook for the character. But it is. Mm-hmm. And again, it was it was so audacious and astonishing for that to be a thing. And it becomes quickly parodied, doesn't it? Like on the goodies and stuff like that back right. in the day. Uh, and people would make fun of it. And I always got slightly, sort because of, as a Star Wars fan, you do, don't you? I always got slightly bristly about, can you stop taking the piss out of it? This is actually fucking genius. Really cool. yeah. This is really cool. <laughs> if it wasn't for that... If you were just a GM describing it, it'd be like, you know, a tall man dressed in black from head to foot with a strangely shaped helmet on and a big cape. He comes out of the fog towards you and ignites a red sword. It just doesn't sound that scary. But Darth Vader was incredible. The presence and the rest of it. And and the name, the naming conventions. I forgot that. You know, Luke Skywalker is the best PC name ever. (laughs) Darth Vader is the best villain name ever. And again, it's been parodied, hasn't it? Like yeah. you can generate your own Star Wars name on the internet. But these were just invented from whole cloth. They were incredible. What you know, just to come up with the idea, Skywalker. What the heck? That just it's just so evocative, so yeah. evocative. I don't think anybody else has actually got cool names like that in Star Wars, have they? I mean, Han Solo, but Skywalker. It's genius, mate. This yeah. it, the characters are they're role playing characters that you would love to see at your table. Yes, and the, you kind of like you forget that it's Sky and Walker, don't you? Yeah, like it, it's now become like common language that they say Skywalker, like it's mm. Robinson or Smith. Like you forget the constituent parts anymore because they've they've taken on their own meaning based on yeah. the actions of the characters and that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, uh, I'm trying really hard not to slate like the other films. That go <laughs> for it. Everyone else is doing it in their head. <laughs> the end of Rogue One. What I, what I don't like about it is it dovetails into the start of episode four. Mm-hmm. And that start is like, you know, has uh, Leah and stuff going, I'm just an ambassador, what are you doing? Like, this is an outrage, you know, that kind of stuff. The lead in at the end of Rogue One, like, just destroys all that story. Yeah. I'll come back to this. But the good thing they did was the Vader scene at the end, again, as I'm, you know, there's like a guy smacking on the door that won up and going, help us, help us, you know, like in blind panic. And that, that feeds into the start of. What happens so far? So that's that's cool. That aspect of it's good. The the trying to dovetail everything together and explain things and you know uh, playing out the Clone Wars and stuff is bad. Yes. Because we all have different stories on our heads, don't we? 
it means something when you watched the original movie it meant something different to you than it means to me or anyone else mm-hmm. but it's that implied setting that we talk about for role playing games a lot of the time and when he talks about your father was the best of us and he died in the clone wars we've immediately got little stories going on in the back of our heads about well oh, clone, what were they mm. cool and he was the best pilot ever oh, he must have been amazing you know you get that stuff and then when they try and play it out in the movies, they obviously have a poorer job because whatever you've imagined is going to be far better than what someone else puts on screen. And they did, you know, a hackney job and all the rest of it, in my opinion. Other people, other ex- opinions do exist. <laughs> but, like, trying to spell things out is probably what ruins it. And trying to do that fan service for me is, like, doesn't help make things cooler. You don't get more cool stuff. You're just repeating stuff that you've already said before or doing poor imitations because whatever you present on screen is not going to be as good as what other people have made up for themselves. And they'll have you can you can't help but disappoint because they've already got cool ideas in their head. And if your idea doesn't beat that, you're in trouble. Mm. So from a role playing point of view, what you want is that implied setting. Is is introducing stuff that fires other people's imaginations. And we've talked about it in D and D or whatever. If your background is soldier or whatever, don't just have soldier. You are, you know, um, a sergeant in the uh, Andalusian lancers and put some extra words around it. And you don't have to explain who the lancers are, which country they're from. What they ride could be lizards for all I know, mm-hmm. but you just start off from a point of view of having cool sounding things and nuggets, and then it's cool because of the imagination it drives. Yeah, you know, it, it, that's a top tip for your role playing games as well as like just don't try and over explain things because when you do, you can't help but disappoint. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that what makes what makes Star Wars such a good vehicle for role playing games, as has been proven over the decades, is that you don't you're not held to the same standard as a Lucasfilm production. Right. So, you, you you know what? Those those prequel films that nobody really liked as a movie, if you'd been playing it as a role-playing campaign, it probably would have serviced really well. It would have been absolutely fine, you know, um, because it's okay to sort of improvise stuff and to use touchstones and everyone be thinking different things around the table. You've all got the same kind of idea of what like an X-Wing looks like, but inside that cockpit, you've got your your own pilot, aren't you? Mm-hmm. So, I think Star Wars is a very forgiving setting, yeah, um, and it's a very inclusive setting as well because you can come to it with your your favourite flavour of Star Wars, and you can all sit around the same table. Interestingly, it's perfectly fine for someone to like want to be the bouncing Yoda <laughs> with a couple of short lightsabers at the same time as you got someone, you know idly flipping a credit coin over their knuckles in a bar and shooting a bad guy under the table. It all fits together quite nicely. Yeah. So it's it's a great setting, and, and I guess we should talk about how it's been served by role-playing games and systems over the decades and, and, and where you would go to if I said, let's play Star Wars next week. Where would you where would you go and where would you not go? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think one of the other things I mentioned actually about why it's good for role playing is the stuff now, like you said, at the time seemed cool, probably hackneyed by this point. Mm. But it allows you to do the hackneyed things that we all do in role playing games. Exactly. People will even mention doing like, oh, let's, let's Chewbacca it. And what they mean is like, yeah. when you're on Cloud City, pretend that Chewbacca's a prisoner and doing that. But we, like that happens in role playing games all the time. Dressing up in Stormtrooper outfits. Well, you, you know, how often have you like beat up the City Watch and nick the uniforms to get in somewhere? Like, mm-hmm. all these things happen. In role-playing games, which is cool. So, the, I mean, I might be putting you on the spot here, but what I want to mention, I've, I've picked it up recently. I've not had a chance to read it yet because it's on the pile of shame with all the other hundreds of books I've got that I've ever read. <laughs> um, the uh, Western Games D6 Star Wars has a lot of love. Yeah. And it's quite simple. And I, I like, I 
good friend Pete talks about it. Plenty of other people do as well. So it's one I want to kind of check out. But I've not. Got, have you got any experience of that? Because I think that might be the one that I want to try next. I do. I do have experience of it, and and some of the things that it introduced will seem old-fashioned by now. Yeah. But it was pretty revolutionary. Uh, I didn't play it at the time, so my knowledge of D6 Star Wars and D6 System, for that matter, came after the, the blossoming of the game. I do know, and this may just be apocryphal, I know that um, the Star Wars role-playing game was the best-selling role-playing game and beating D&D for some time wow. because they had the Star Wars attractions at Disney World or whatever it was over in the States. And on the shop on the way out, you could buy the Star Wars role-playing uh, game. Right. So they sold an awful lot of copies. <laughs> for the same reason, I think that the Pokemon RPG is like the best-selling role-playing <laughs> game of all time, <laughs> despite no one actually playing it. It's just bought a lot rather yeah. than played a lot. But anyway, the D6 system, so you've got you, you've got archetypes in it and templates, which was a fairly new thing. So like that, that half-baked character where you just drop in some extra points on it. Um, the core mechanic of the D6s just makes a lot of sense. And it's kind of intuitive as well. You kind of already know the odds when you're rolling a few D6, don't you? By now, it's just in your head. Um, and it it did emulate the, the feel of the movies really, really well. Um, a lot of people like it because of the way it expanded the Star Wars universe and people mm. were hungry for more. And in fact, I believe that some of the stuff that West End Games did is... Yeah. I couldn't tell you what that is. But, but as a game to play... It's really enjoyable. I've tried to, I initially tried to do some sort of like white room stuff on it where I've just set up Han Solo on a speeder bike being chased by stormtroopers on speeder bikes and have that my, my couple of character sheets. And I often do this with new games. You generate a character, then you have a fight with a couple of them. Don't you? Yeah. And it was really interesting to see how that worked. And it worked really, really well. And that's a chase scene with vehicles and a couple of characters and some stormtroopers. But it felt very Star Warsy. It was pretty slick. Um, and it did the job really well. And after that, I went and invested in the D6 system just as a kind of a go-to generic system. For a while, it was published as purely as just D6. Um, and there was a space volume and a fantasy volume, and I imagine a supers volume. And I had a lot of love for D6, but it never, it never got above D20, Savage Worlds, and these days, Genesis... And all of the other stuff, it, it always seems to be everybody's second and favourite system. Right, yeah. And, and when you've got a lot of games on available on deck, it never quite got there for me. But I know that people played it hugely. They played D6 and had a lot of love for it. How much of that is nostalgia? I don't know. It'd be interested mm. to see what your experience is of it going into it from scratch. But people still say it's the best one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and then I guess my other, like my most recent and, and probably broadest experiences is playing the FFG version yeah. that you said, and I have mixed feelings about it. Me too. Um, the books all look gorgeous, and you know there's a lot of good info in there, but the way the system plays, it's like a lot of FFG stuff. I think it comes from board games or card games, and they kind of like can't help bringing that into the role-playing games as well, and the way they template stuff, and it's got... A system basically there's funky dice, so you generally roll green and yellow ones if <laughs> when you're trying to do something positive, mm-hmm. and they'll have symbols on them or blank faces, and the symbols that are successes or hits, and then symbols which are like advantages, which will be like extra little boosts that you get, mm-hmm. and then the gems got dice that have basically 
counters to those hits, so like dodges or whatever you might want to call them. Uh, and then also the version of threats, I think they're called, which is like the bad things that might come off. So there's a lot of cancelling out. And my problem with the dice is that you roll, you can both roll a bunch of dice, and then by the time you've cancelled out, nothing's happened. Or very little's happened. There's one success, but you rolled eight dice each. So the overhead of rolling the dice for what you get out of the system is a bit of a problem for me. Mm-hmm. In that it just takes a lot of time for people to calculate what's going on. Now, having said that, online, that all works a lot better because there's online dice rollers that do it all for you. So you just press your button and then a number comes out the end that tells you how many success or threat or whatever it might be that's happened. So that's cool. My other point that I want to make about that as well is that these advantages and threats you get, it, if you keep rolling a lot of them, as happens sometimes just due to variance, it gets harder as a GM to introduce things. So if the players have succeeded but there's some threat, you might go, some more reinforcements have turned up, there's extra stormtroopers, or there's you know alarm set off or whatever it is. But if round after round and multiple players are generating threat, it becomes tough to think of things that have happened to escalate mm. the scene. You know, there's like if it happens once or twice, it's fun, and you can introduce stuff which seems interesting and feels like a, a, a movie shot or a part of a TV scene. But if it keeps happening, you end up like just like a loss for what else you can introduce. Now, there's only some things like you know guns can jam or other things like that. So, although things are generated by the way the system is, I think it's too much engineering for not enough benefit. Yeah, is my view. Uh, uh, yeah, I broadly agree, mate. I mean, I really like the dice system, but then the, I can absolutely tell that the novelty is going to be wearing off pretty soon. Hmm. Um, it's good fun at the moment because we're early into it. And and there's storytelling opportunities from those dice rolls. I think, uh, to, to your point, where, it's, where it starts to get a bit onerous is the game is presented in quite a trad manner, yeah. a very traditional manner, which means plenty of dice rolling. And the more roll, dice rolls you get, the more twists and complications it puts into the narrative. It actually just uh, starts to come undone after a while. And despite the dice being there for story purposes, I think they get rolled too often. So mm. that would be fine. But the rest of the system is as trad as anything. When we were generating our characters the other day, it was great. And we were having lots of fun. And we were picking skill points. And it's slightly too skilly for my taste. There's too yeah. many skills on there. But no, no, never mind. Understood the core mechanic, looked like fun. And then we got given a credit amount each to go and spend, like it was the player's handbook 1978. Yeah. And it's like there's reams and reams and reams of equipment that we have to buy with money, and you can take an extra disadvantage at the start of the game to get more money. And I thought, is money actually a thing? Money is a thing. Is it? I suppose it is Edge of the Empire, so yeah, we are taking jobs for pay. Yeah. But it got down to that granular level. And, and then you realise there's an encumbrance chapter, and you think... This is a reskinned, trad as anything game that stuck mm. some narrative dice onto it, which is terrific, but it's pulling in a couple of different directions here. Yeah. And, and at the moment, I've got, you know, a blaster. I can't afford a holster for it. I mean, you can buy <laughs> nothing with your starting your money. <laughs> so, you know, you can take an obligation, you can increase <laughs> your obligation to get loads more money. And with all of these games, I'll absolutely keep mashing that obligation button. Yeah, I want more just, stuff because yeah. that means I'm going to get more game. Yeah. It's going to be amazing because I'm going to get problems to deal with and you're rolling me with cash that I can spend on grenades. It, it, I don't know if it's a brilliant emulation of Star Wars. It, it does to Star Wars what superhero games do to comics. It yeah. becomes all about you know bean counting and accountancy. Yeah, and that's, that sort of thing is good in terms of, you know, we, we both picked up Traveller in either the 70s or 80s and we looked at it shaking it wondering where our Star Wars was. 
<laughs> the first time I tried to run it for a friend who was into it, and, a, and his friend who wasn't really into role-playing games that much anyway, I was bothered about it. And I felt bad because I was like, I don't know what to do with this. Like, I bought a whole box at a traveller and it didn't have any, there's nothing fun to do. You go onto a planet to survey it or something, it was like, this is dull as anything. I can see why the other guy didn't get into role-playing games. <laughs> there's an element of how much realism do you want in your game, I guess, and how much mm. being counting and stuff like that. Uh, the obligation stuff's good, taking disadvantage to get more money so you have things to do. That that all works fine. And it's a bit of a challenge in any system where you're going to get paid for jobs, and that drives mm. you, isn't it? So I remember mm. playing Aeon Trinity, and that had a similar thing where it had like a resource dotage. So how many dots in resources had like give you like an escalating scale, almost a logarithmic scale of how much you could afford. Yeah. Which is fine until it got into the adventures, which all were like, oh, we'll give you 10,000 credits or whatever to do this job. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, what does that mean? I've got dots of resources and you're offering me like a static number to do a thing. I don't even understand how that works one way or the other. But like yeah. equally, you don't kind of want to get into counting grenades necessarily. Mm. Yeah, but a bit of a, I, I totally agree with you. There is like a cross dynamic in the game between some of the narrative fun stuff and then other times it seems really tragic. Because I think, if I remember correctly, some gear like has, it gives you a dice to do something or an advantage die or it like. Yeah. Gear matters. It's not just a matter of saying I've got climbing gear. Like the climbing gear will give you a bonus in certain situations or that kind of thing. So you kind of have to pay attention to it. And if you don't do the bean counting and having money, then you've got loads of advantage dice all over the place. You just pick whatever equipment you want and get loads Mm. of extra dice, which Mm. seems a bit weird. Yeah, or everything's customizable as well. Yeah, Um, it's it's a bit of a gearhead game. It's it's just trad, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you know, but cyberpunk it, games, a lot of others fall into that trap. I think, don't they? Anything that's like got tech, mm. immediately seems to want to have like big shopping lists of stuff that do mm. slightly different things. And if you're into, I don't know, like maybe Pathfinder two players, I love it. You know, that kind of like leafing through page after page of stuff to get the best optimized cool thing. Yeah. If that's your bag, then you'll find that a, a feature rather than a bug. Yes. Yeah. And and in my personal headspace. Um, Han Solo is a great character because he's Han Solo, not because of the heavy blaster. That's a right. part of it, but I'm not that worried about, you know, what pistol he's got and what ammunition goes into it. Now, yeah. all that stuff matters in a game like Slay Industries or Cyberpunk, like you say, where that's part of your character. But I don't think Star Wars characters are defined by the kit they carry, apart from you know, a lightsaber is obviously a thing. Yeah, exactly. And the Millennium Falcon is a thing, but that's not because they bought them down the Star Wars shopping mall with their credits as a starting character. Yeah, exactly. So like the the sort of mild sledging of travel I would do is that you start off with debt in a ship, but it's not like hmm. it is just like a bank loan often. Or something. it's just like a nebulous thing you have to pay off. Not a disadvantage that's going to turn up like a bounty hunter that's after you or a crime boss that you've crossed or whatever it might be that then makes it more interesting. It's just like a, a minus number on your character sheet that you eventually pay off by being a space bus. Or whatever it is that you're doing traveling. I'm sure lots of people are raging at the uh, podcast right now. Yes, I know Paris of Drenex is very good. And that there are good things to travel. I'm being, being slightly unkind to it, I know. I'm just talking about Traveller of the 70s. <laughs> 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 there, there wasn't a lot out for it. <laughs> okay, so wh- where would you go, mate? Um, and you, maybe you'd go off-piste. Um, at some point, you'll probably have to mention a hot war, I don't know, because it's been a long time now. But where would you go for Star Wars shenanigans if you were a hacker, or is there something off the shelf that you would definitely pull to play the game with? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Like I say, I want to try D6. The other thing I mentioned about the FFG system, actually, while I remember, mm. is there's kind of like fate points 
I can't remember exactly what they're called, but the the light side and dark side points, I think. It Destiny is. points. Destiny points, that's it. And it's a double-sided, it's like a piece of a go board or something with white on one side, black on the other. So when you use it for an advantage, uh, it doesn't get spent per se. You flip it to the dark mm-hmm. side. So um, the GM, when he spends his dark side points to mess things up for you, they flip to light side points. So that that's a good way. Again, it's one of those sort of semi-narrative things that if the GM is putting a lot of pressure on you, you know that the next scene... You're gonna have a lot of points to spend to like give you advantage, so you kind of get that ups and downs that you do in TV shows and movies as well. Mm. So that, that's quite a cool feature. There's lots of other stuff you could use. So yeah, I can't really mention my classics, but yeah, hot war you could use for something in Andor where there's kind of the machinations of the imperial bureaucrats. Mm. You could definitely do something like that. Or if you wanted to play uh, members of the rebellion and try not to get found out, or there's different factions within the rebellion, that kind of thing. Uh, so you could definitely do a more narrative version around the stories of building a rebellion that'd be good for that I think quite often people will turn to something like Savage Worlds because mm-hmm. that's action adventure uh, I guess for me that's a little bit too much of the action it, it, it leans too much into action like a lot of the game is geared towards fighting things and I don't think for my preference it's not necessarily the only thing I want to do with my Star Wars Okay. I'd be more interested in doing, you know, a lot of the planning to embed an Imperial base or something like that, which kind of neatly segues me into, I think, something like a Forge in the Dark game would work really well. Mm-hmm. So instead of being uh, like Blades in the Dark, you're a band of just thugs or whatever, like you are a rebellion cell and you have to go on scores to get uh, Imperial kit or to raid garrisons or to, you know, assassinate someone or whatever it might be. But yeah, that's, I don't know if there's a hack of it out there already or not, but that's something I'd really like to see or do, is create mm-hmm. a Forged in the Dark version of uh, Star Wars Rebels. And that is exactly where I'd go, and, and the hack is Scum of Villainy, I guess. It's, um, Scum of Villainy was the second Forged in the Dark game after Blades in the Dark. Yes. Really very, 90% same as Blades in the Dark, mechanically. Mm. Um, but it offers gambits as a new mechanical geekle. And there's there's three styles of playing Scum of Villainy, and the middle style is Rebellion. So it, And it really is. They talk about serial numbers being filed off. It really is. And and the universe yeah. that they have as a default setting for Scum of Villainy is it's the Galactic Empire. There's, it has the way instead of the force. May the right. way be with yeah. you. All of that. And it has a ship, and it has a crew, and it's heisty. So it fits in with the Edge of Empire or, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, but it, it certainly gets a little bit more militaristic with that kind of middle middle strand of the three strands that Scum of Villainy offers. Right, and I yes. think it's got a lot I think it's got a lot to offer actually. I think it's I think it's a really good framework for playing Star Wars with and 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 I think it's almost a shame they can't. I get why they can't in the book, but in my games of Scum of Villainy, I I actually well I should just say let's play Star Wars and lean right into it. So we don't, you know, we don't have Urbots, yes. which is what Scum of Villainy has. We have droids. We just have droids, and let's call them that. Yeah, I think that's a good shout. I, I almost forgot about Scum of Villainy because, for whatever reason, whenever I play it, it always turns into Firefly or Cowboy Bebop. Yes, yeah, it, it does. Always seems to. No matter how we say we're going to play it, that's just what comes out of the end. So yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Probably like explicitly say we're playing Star Wars. Yeah, and use Scum of Villainy is the way to do it. Mm. Yeah, mm. it's a it's a great game for loads of different reasons. It is super flexible, um, and I think it needs it, it needs addressing on the top. Like people say about Savage Worlds, don't they? When you put the setting on it, it comes to life. Right. Unsurprisingly, and I think Scum and Villainy is unlike any other Forged in the Dark game. It is presented almost as a generic sci-fi game, 
Mm. All of the other Forged in Dark games are quite focused on a specific thing. But within that, that's where it loses a little bit of its efficacy by being a bit everything to everyone. But if you bring it back in, I think you could absolutely play Alien with Scum and Villainy. You should certainly play Star Wars. There's definitely things that you could do because it does provide emulation of cinematic kind of Lucasfilm productions. And if yeah. everybody around the table has got a similar headcanon, which they will do when you say, let's play Star Wars, I think it might really, really lubricate that game where sometimes it can be a bit sticky if we don't all know what we mean by things. Hmm. And it does require, I mean, this is true of all fours in the dark games, but it does require players to be active. Yeah. So I've, I've, I have got um, an experience to share that I played with a friend of ours and some of their friends. But the, like I run it as a two-shot, basically. It was uh, one of those gaming weekends where you go around someone's house for the weekend and buy loads of snacks. Everybody buys, everybody buys enough snacks for everybody. So you end up with like six times as many snacks as you need that you're trying to like eat your way through. And then it gets towards the evening. Does anybody fancy a takeaway? It's like, oh, I've had about 37 bags of Doritos. I'm actually all right. So obviously I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like be really nutty. So one of those kind of weekends. And we played one session. It was really good. And then went for the second session. It just fell flat. And then obviously the players may well have a different view on this. But my view was the players didn't want to do anything almost, or not do anything. That's that's unfair. But they weren't actively engaging. So when there was this bad guy that they were trying to chase down and work out what he's doing, a lot of their actions wanted to be, oh, we'll watch the docks, or we'll like stake out the casino and stuff like that. And it's like, that's mm. not what... If you think of Star Wars, that's not what happens. Like mm. They don't stake out places. They go and do stuff. They take active roles. They break in somewhere to find out what's going on. So, yeah. I think it works. It just requires the players to think like they're in a movie, where... You can't be about hanging around waiting to see what happens. That's not what occurs. Everyone's always on a quest to find something or running away from something or trying to get in somewhere. or you know, It's got to be active. Think yes. active tense all the time. Yeah, which is where the flashback mechanisms come in. Okay, so loads of different ways to get your Star Wars to the table. And I think probably the most effective way to do it is to say, let's play Star Wars. Mm. And you, can, you can pick your poison as far as mechanics and stuff is concerned. But the, the huge benefit is that there's no encyclopedia that you have to know. And no one's going to say what year is it. No one, hopefully, is just like researching stuff on the galactic internet or doing <laughs> stuff like that. Because it just, it, everyone should get the feel straight away, shouldn't they? Yeah. And yeah, and I think there's still so much more to explore with Star Wars from your ideas, mate, of like taking that kind of angled view of like a really sort of obscure lens of what's it looked like from the eye, through the eyes of an Ewok. You know, yeah. I can't imagine we're going to have any Gungan Raiden parties anytime soon around our table, but who knows? It's a big universe. <laughs> I think it was more of a meme than anything, but at that uh, that Ewok game I played, which was uh, Endor's game, oh, as a play nice. on words, Guy was also running at the same time uh, the reciprocal one, which was Gungans and Dragons, which was amusing <laughs> for the title alone, but I, I definitely <sighs> couldn't face playing it. Are you yavin' a laugh? <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I think uh, you just touched on something there, which is like I think one of the reasons Star Wars works is because it's it's old tech, even though mm. it's futuristic. So it's things like if we need something off a computer, we've got to break into the Imperial garrison to get it off the computer. Yeah. We can't search the internet. I think that's it's that those kind of like it's futuristic, but with limitations that then make our venture opportunities. That's what what makes it better than a lot of games, or or something like Star Trek, where you just kind of do like oh we need thing X, well we'll just use a replicator and make one. Then like that's just 
dull. No, what you want that aesthetic of making something work by flicking the switch on and off a lot, toggling yeah. that switch, and then there's only about three it, buttons. But... <laughs> it on the side, yeah, <laughs> lovely. Oh, good stuff. <laughs> Excellent. Well, if anyone out there fancies running me a game of D6 Star Wars to show it what it's all about, I'm, I'm definitely up for a one shot. I don't know what the buzz is on that, but yeah, yeah, feel like yeah I'd love to play game. D6. Just just to check it out to increase our knowledge. We like having more knowledge of RPGs is always good for us. And, uh, yeah, thanks very much, of course, to our patrons and everyone who supports the channel. Uh, if you tell other people about it, share it on Mastodon or whatever social media will still exist when this <laughs> podcast goes out, <laughs> on your blogs or Reddits or whatever else there might be these days that people have gone to. Oh, for the days of Google+. I'm, I'm thinking of writing it on postcards and putting stamps in the corner. It could be as well. I might start writing stuff and put it in my window. Just what <laughs> I used to do the post office. <laughs> but yeah, anyone who shares our stuff or tells other people about it, that's the best way of supporting. Listening to the end of a podcast, uh, getting other people involved, share it on whatever platform you want. Uh, it's all great. But if you do have an extra dollar or two so that uh, Baz can put on his heating in his shed that he's only to uh, record mm. from at the minute, That'd be really appreciated. Even a dollar a month helps us pay the internet man and all of the costs that we have to incur. Live long and prosper. 